Hello and welcome to another podcast episode for Redeemer Church in Columbus, Mississippi. Our desire with these episodes is to provide quality content based on the material we're working through in our weekly core group meetings. We're striving to build a multi-demographic community of believers with the purpose of glorifying God through proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and resting in Christ. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this scripture. We pray that we would approach it in a way that would be God-honoring and God that would also lead to us to live in life of action. We love you and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to be transparent on the front end today. Um, you know, As I kind of said everything that we were going through this week, I don't mean for this to be an excuse or anything of that nature, just a reality check to, to where I'm at is that in preparing for this sermon, um, I, I was able to dig heavily into context and understanding what is going on there. But when it comes to the application points, it was harder for me uh, to really dive in like I really wanted to. Um, because when I do this, I generally try to think of our people. And I try to think of our community, our area, where we're at as a church. I try to think through a long list of things. If you're ever curious of what those lists are, I would be glad to share a PDF with you with my outline of how I go about this. But because of everything going on, it was just difficult for me to. Um, I, I plan to have application for you, but I just want to be transparent with you in this because it's not going to be as well-crafted as I want it to be. Um, and I think that's okay. We're going to see what God does with it. All right, so first and foremost, before we get into anything, if David would go ahead and go to this next slide, uh, what we're going to be looking at is three things, really two things, and under this main topic. The main title of the sermon is not really a title. It's really this idea that when people seek what is wise in their own eyes, God is not king, and two, there is hopeless despair. When people seek what is wise in their own eyes, one, God is not king, and two, there is hopeless despair. First and foremost, let's look at this idea of when people seek their, what is wise in their own eyes. If David would go to the next one for me. We see first and foremost, this first verse is all we're looking at that says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his sons. Now, this is a little bit harder for us to understand, but the book of Ruth, the people argue and, and, and talk back and forth on really the intent and the, the motive in writing this book. Uh, I generally land where I think this was a narrative that was supposed to be an example to us, but also uh, an historical example. So it's something that actually happened, but it's to teach us how to live in a lot of ways. But because of that, it is written as a, a narrative. It was written as a story. It was written to grip you and to hold your attention uh, each segment after segment after segment. And as someone that grew up not reading as much as I read now, and now since I read more... Um, topical books and informative books. I don't read a lot of narratives and things of that nature. I'm trying to get back into it, but I haven't got there yet. Um, but because of that, the best idea that I have for this is movies. 
uh, or TV shows or things of that such is any kind of storytelling, right? There's this moment where the author is trying to hold your attention tight and hold your hold the grip so that you're, you're wondering what's going to occur next or what's about to unfold or, or, or really what's happening in the life of the individuals involved. Um, one TV show that I remember referencing when I preached the latter part of Ruth at Spring Hill was the TV show Lost. Um, I don't know if anybody has ever watched the TV show Lost, but it came out when I was in high school, and I watched it a little bit and then watched it again in college. And the show makes absolutely no sense. But what it does well is it holds your attention. It keeps you asking what's next. See, in verse 1, that's exactly what this author is doing. He's introducing these theoretical characters, though in verses 2 through 5, we see the whole framework of their entire life unfolding in four measly verses. But he begins by giving us a lot of details in a small amount of words. He says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The land here being Jerusalem or Judea, the surrounding area, the land in which God's people dwelt. Now, the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled, is probably one of the most significant things for us to see in the context of these verses. Because it doesn't tell us when it was written. It doesn't tell us which judge was in high esteem at the time period. Uh, But it does tell us in the time period, uh, about two to three hundred years, if I'm remembering correctly. I may may not be on that statement. But in this two to three hundred years, it's telling us this time frame in which it could have happened. Now, some people think it's later. Some people think it's earlier within this frame. Regardless, what we know that it's in the time frame of when the judges ruled the earth. Why is that important? Why is it important that we understand that this was in the days in which the judges ruled? Because in the day in which the judges ruled was this time period, was this constant cycle of man rebelling against God, God delivering his wrath onto the men that rebelled against him, and then they're repenting of their sin And then God showing his mercy to sad people. And then it all over again. Rebellion. Wrath. Repentance. Hope. Rebellion. Wrath. Repentance. Hope. Rebellion. Wrath. Repentance. Hope. Over and over and over again. Sometimes affecting the entire land. Sometimes affecting portions of Judea. In this context, what we would rightly note is that it's affecting all of Judea. Okay? Affecting all of Judea, this is going on. It's this moment that they're in this moment, apparently, where they have sinned against God and God is delivering His wrath on them. How do we know that to be the case? Um, We don't know for sure, um, but we would determine that by looking at the words, uh, there was famine in the land. Because when God's people was living in a way that God called them to live, we knew and we know that God's blessing was upon them. And so they wouldn't be going through this calamity and this difficulty of famine if they were living right in the eyes of the Lord during this time period. So most likely, they were at this phase in this cycle of where they were rebelling against God. 
Now, really to make this make sense to you, not only for our first point and title of the sermon, but also just to make this make more sense for you uh, in the days of the judges, if, you, if your Bible is like mine, on the page right next to it is the last chapter of Judges. Look at verse 25 with me. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because there was no single king, and there was no reverence or true reverence for God, the people lived the life they wanted to live. And because of that, we see that there was a man of Bethlehem in Judea that went to sojourn in a country of Moab and his wife and two sons. Now, you may be like me in your initial question, Maybe something along the lines of what is wrong with a man from Bethlehem going to Moab to find food for his family? This seems like a a proactive mission of this man to provide for his family. And if we don't know anything about the context, it sounds like this unnamed man so far is doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing, which was a godly decree of taking care of his family. Especially since you see the word here, sojourned, which means that he was traveling through. He wasn't going there to live. He wasn't going there to make this their new home or to set roots or buy a house and put up this picket fence. He wasn't going there to do those things, but he was initially going there to seek food for his family that would presumably die of starvation because they had none. Now, as I said earlier, this is a narrative, and words mean things in life, and they mean things in narratives. Now, they don't mean as much to us because, as I said earlier, we're not the original audience, so we wouldn't pick up on things they pick up on. But when you read the word Bethlehem, unless you just have this basic understanding of things, or really really entailed understanding of things, because it's not something I would know right off either, um, the first thing you would think of is Jesus. This is where he is from. This small town in the middle of nowhere, this is where he's from. When we get to the last part of Ruth, you're going to see exactly who Naomi and all these people are in light of who Christ is. But until then, when we see the term Bethlehem, we naturally just think of where Jesus is from. But Bethlehem has a meaning, much like any Hebrew word. And the meaning for Bethlehem is house of bread. All right? So that's why, in my opinion, that's why Jesus is from there. Uh, This is why it's named Bethlehem is because he is the bread of life. He's from there, right? Um, But in here, the author, this author writing this beautiful narrative is giving us some irony. And the irony is that this man that lives in the land of the house of bread is in the middle of a famine that is now sojourning to a land that was not a land that he was supposed to be in. See, Moab... You don't know much about it. Uh, I don't know much about it. Uh, Just scholarly, there's not a ton about it. But what we do know about it is Moab is the place in which Lot's family dwelt after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the land in which Lot and his offspring by his daughters live. Well, daughters-in-laws. Daughters, yeah, live. This is a land that ultimately wasn't a land they were supposed to be in. Not because of that, just because it wasn't a land in which God provided for his people. 
They were supposed to stay in Judea. This was the promised land. The land where God promised to give them milk and honey as long as they did as He called them to do. But now, this man and his wife and his two sons are leaving the place in which God had for them to go and to try and accomplish this on their own. See, there was a simple solution for this man, this unnamed man so far. The simple solution for him was whatever he had done against God, whatever rebellion that he personally and his family had done in committing against God, all he had to do was repent of his sins, place trust in God, and trust in God's providence to provide for his family. But what we see here is this unnamed man doesn't do that. He goes and he does something that seems so right to us but was so against who God was calling him to be. And I think that's the first point of application for us is often in life, if we're working outside of the will of God, then it may seem right to us, but it's not where God desires for us to go. If we're working out of the will of God, if we're, if we're not obeying and following His commands, what we're actually doing is trying to accomplish something in our own strength, in our own ability, rather than trusting in the sovereign and good work of God in our lives. See, the reality is, is that we see throughout all of the Old Testament even up until this point, that God would use famine for good. God provided for his people through Daniel. Not Daniel, I'm sorry. God provided for his people through Joseph in midst of a famine. God provided and placed his people exactly where they needed to be for them to be enslaved for 400 years to bring forth the plan of God and the life of Pharaoh and the life of the Israelites through a famine. And the other point of application here in this, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself in the narrative, is that what is unfolding in the life of this unnamed man so far, though it was right in his own eyes and against the Lord, was somehow used by God for good. And we're going to see that in a little bit. But first and foremost, when we as individuals choose to act outside of God's design, then we see two side effects according to this scripture. The first one, as we've seen already, is that God is not actually king, or God is not king. We're getting into a little bit more irony here. All right, let's look at verses 2 through 3 together. It says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were in, uh, Ephorites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her two sons. So first and foremost, this is the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of the wife Naomi. Here's more irony for us. Is Elimelech, his name means God is king. But then Naomi's name means pleasant and lovely. So his name means God is king in a land there was no king. 
in a moment in which he desired to be the king of his own life by acting outside of the plan and will of God, by going to Moab instead of staying in which the land that he placed him in. And his wife, Naomi's name, is Pleasant. And in a few weeks, we're going to look at this idea that Naomi actually changes her name to uh, Mora, I believe. Um, and her name then means bitter. And the reason why she changes her name is because the meaning of her name here. Because her name means pleasant. At this point in her life, she's pleasant. She has her husband. She has her two sons. This was ideal. She had hope. Her, her husband was alive, which means she had hope of survival. She had love. She had compassion. She had her two sons. So if something were to happen to her husband, she would still have hope in, in depending upon her son to provide for her, the oldest son. But then if something even happened to the oldest son, which would be unlikely, right? She would even have that second son that, that would be there and be the staple and be, be able to continue to provide for her because in this day and time, a woman, especially a woman living outside of her country, really didn't have hope of providing for herself. She couldn't own property without a husband or without a son to obtain the property when he becomes of age. Uh, she really didn't represent the family in a lot of ways. It was more the, the male characters within the family. But what we see here is a man's name, a man whose name means literally God is king is acting if, is, is if God is not king, whose wife is named Pleasant, that in just a few verses will no longer be pleasant. But we see other things going on in this text. Uh, just to point out, uh, Malon and Chilion, we probably won't see those names much more, if at all. If they have no specific meaning, okay? There's no irony in those two names. Um, but there is irony in the first two names. But it goes on, it says they were Ephraites from Bethlehem in Judea. Uh, there may be some significance of who, who, what clan they're a part of. We've already looked, went over the significance of Bethlehem and Judea. I think we really see it a second time here because he's really just trying to push where he's from. Because as we're going to see at the very last sermon in the book of Ruth, is these are uh, our predecessors or uh, people uh, that were the lineage of David. And David being from Bethlehem, and then in our context, we know that Christ is a descendant of David being a descendant of Bethlehem, that this is the lineage of Christ, okay? So the author here, I think, is just trying to paint the picture clear that these men, this man, this woman, her sons are from Bethlehem where David is from, okay? Um, but keep on going in the text where I think the most significant thing here, it says, and they went into the country of Moab. And look at the change of language here. And remained there. See, when you look back at verse 1, it ends with that verse where it says, When went to the country, went to sojourn to the country of Moab. See, when he initially went to Moab, the mindset wasn't to stay there. He was going to be a sojourner, which means he was going to travel through. His intentions were possibly even pure in a lot of ways, though living outside of the way in which God would have for him. That he was going to go there for a little while to get enough bread and enough food and, and to provide for his family. But we see a change, some change here. 
because as I said earlier, this is a narrative and a narrative has meaning. And the meaning is grouped in the words in which the author used. And he doesn't use these words by accident. And so what he's saying here is this man named Elimelech. He doesn't go to the land of Moab, though he may have initially went to sojourn. That's not the ending, the ending intention. He ends up staying there. He remained there. He went to the land of the enemy, the land of the pagan, the land of those against God. And he ends up staying there. Most likely, why he stays there is because he found bread and food and excess. And the trust that he should have had in God was now in the physical things that he found in the land of the enemy. And it would be quick for us to say, how dare him? How dare Elimelech go and stay there? You know, yeah, maybe travel there, maybe get your food from there, maybe, maybe provide for your family by making this short and small trip to get enough food, but how dare he stay there? Clearly, he had a good in the land of the Lord, in the promised land that, that God promised to his people for centuries. How dare him stay there? But the reality is, is that when we do what is wise in our own eyes, we act just like he does, and we stay in places that we should not be for a period that is way too long. We stay in a a mood, or we stay in sinful acts, or we stay in living in a way that is just not God-glorifying. See, we are quick to look at this man and say, how dare him? But if any of us men were in the same shoes as him, I would beg to say that we would probably have done the same exact thing that he did. I most certainly would have struggled by looking at my four children and wife and watched them starve. And then finding a land that provided for them, I would have found it very difficult to leave. But we see this picture unfolding, this narrative unfolding of a man that was supposed to be at a different place, staying at a place that he should not be. Now, we see what happens to him. He dies. And I'm not going to stand here and try to argue that this was necessarily the wrath of God on display in his life. I'm not God. I can't say God's motive. It doesn't tell me that this was God's wrath or anything of that nature. I can't sit here and say that Elimelech died simply because he stayed in the land of Moab instead of being in Bethlehem where God intended him to be. I can't argue that. I can't say that. Is there a possibility? Yes. Um, Is there a possibility he would not have starved in Bethlehem? Yes. But ultimately what we should see in the text is that God is still at work in the disobedience of his children. That God is still at work in the disobedience of Elimelech and Naomi in this moment. Because though we're going to see calamity even get worse in their life, we're going to see throughout the entire book of Ruth that God is their Redeemer. He restores and provides for them. Let's look at the progression in the next part. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Um, 
when you look in the second part of verse one, uh, verse two, it says the, the names of his two sons. The word his there is showing ownership. Because as he was still alive, he was the, guard, the, the guider, the director, the provider for the family, the one that, that really led them, right? He was the one that was their leader and made sure they were doing and going where, where he thought they should be going. And we see that he, in doing what was wise in his own eyes, is actually going against what God would have led them to not only sojourn to Moab, but to stay there, okay? But what we're about to see is that the ownership of said sons change in this, ver- this part of the verse where it says her husband, uh, the husband of Naomi died. It says, and she was left with her two sons. Husband's dead. She's alive. She still has the two sons. That's going to be important in just a moment. But what we should see in this is that not all hope is lost. Yes, she lost her husband. She is grieving and saddened. We don't know why or how he died. We don't know any of that. But she's most certainly grieving over this circumstance. But she's not hopeless. She still has her sons to provide and take care of her or to use as means of provision until they get of an age to where they can physically do it for her. We don't know how old they are. But what we do know is not all hope is lost yet. They're simply living a life where God is not king. And living a life where God is not king, they're doing what is wise in their own eyes. And in doing so, they're living in a land that they should not be living. But you could argue up until this point, that's Elimelech that made these decisions. It was his decision to sojourn. It was his decision to stay there. Most certainly, as, the, as a family, they may have even discussed it, and it may have been, Naomi may have been okay with it. I don't know. We can't argue with that now, but I would say that nowadays that will certainly be the case. But at the end of it all, it was still his job to lead his family. And he did. And so we would be quick to say Naomi was not at fault in the two previous things. But what we see... In this next section is Ruth makes the same conscious decision to stay in the land of Moab. So the third thing we're going to see is that, or really the second thing we're going to see that when we work or do what is wise in our own eyes is that there is hopeless despair. Verses 4 and 5 says, These took Moab wives, talking of the two sons. The name of the one is Orpha and the name of the other is Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Chilion died, so that the women was left without her two sons and her husband. So we see it says, these took Moabite wives. Most likely, Naomi, and as we look correctly in the character of Naomi, at the in middle of Ruth's story, Um, we would certainly see that this was possibly the case, is Naomi was probably the one that helped them find their wives. She was probably an active participant in them finding their wives. And so Naomi here is making the same conscious decision that her husband made, and that was to stay in the land of Moab instead of going back to the land in which they were supposed to be dwelling. And in that process, we see that they became, they get two, they each get a wife. One name is Orpha and the other's name is Ruth. 
Ruth is obviously the major character. We hear nothing of Orpha after the next week's sermon, um, but we see we hear and see Ruth's character throughout all of this, and she goes down in history because of who she was and what God was doing in her life. Um, we don't know which husband married which woman. Uh, most likely the first married the first and the second married the second. But we don't know. Insignificant, though. But what we see here is that they make this conscious decision. She makes this conscious decision to allow her sons to marry Moabite women in the land of Moab instead of going back to Bethlehem to find wives for them to marry there. So she continues this, this thread of living in a lifestyle and a practice that they should not be living. And what is the outcome of it? The outcome of it is that they live there about 10 years. See, if it stopped there and then said, and then they moved back to Bethlehem, it would be a, a good story. But that's not why it stops there. It says they live there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion die. When we pick up next week, what we're going to see is that after this encounter, Naomi's going back home. She's going back home to die because she has no one left. But she doesn't want to die in the land of the enemy. She wants to lie in the land of Bethlehem. But in this moment, what we see is that it doesn't happen to be they decide to move back, but they move back because after 10 years they die. But the other thing we should note here is that the, the, the phrase 10 years could be taken literally as they literally lived there 10 years, which is possible. Uh, it could be taken as um, they were supposed to have children within this time period. They didn't, and then they died. Or it could be taken as a combination of the two. Uh, I would land in the third thing. It's a combination of the two. And what, what we see in this is that traditionally and normally within a 10-year marriage in this time, eight, time period, the husband and wife would have had children. But there's no mention of children. So what that tells us about their story is that someone here was not able to have children. Either it was the wives or the husbands. But they were barren. They had no children within a 10-year marriage. None. Just like earlier when we said the, the death of the father couldn't be necessarily said as a wrath of God on the people's life. Uh, we can't say that about this circumstance either. But what we can certainly say is that God desired for Naomi to move back to Bethlehem and for Ruth to come alongside her. And in that desire to do so, what would have prevented her from that is if she would have had children of her own in the land of Moab. So we don't know why they couldn't have children we don't know what caused that. We don't know any of those things. We don't know nothing about their personal lives that led to this moment. But what we do know is that God had a desire for Ruth. And that desire for Ruth was to redeem Elimelech's land and namesake, as well as being a redeemer that would foreshadow the true redeemer. But in this moment of losing her two sons, Naomi found herself in hopeless despair. There was no hope for her. She was most likely at an age where she was now barren as well, but she was also most likely at an age where her family had already died. Her mother and father would have already have died. 
And not only that, but her husband died, so she had no husband, and then her two sons die, and so she has no hope of survival, particularly in the land of the, of the Moabites. She had no hope in this circumstance. None whatsoever. And as I said earlier, as we're going to look next week, she's going to realize this and hit in rock bottom. She's going to decide to go back to her homeland. And what I want us to see in this is very, very simply is that we are Naomi. Spiritually speaking, we are Naomi. Outside of Christ's provision and being our Redeemer, we have no hope. We are in a land of the enemy, living among men of the enemy, living like men of the enemy. Without Christ, we are sinful individuals, living among sinful individuals, doing sinful things not willing to do what is right or able to do what is right that would lead us to salvation. And without Christ, each and every one of us was Naomi. We're in a land that we do not belong to without hope. But the reality here is that God will redeem Naomi through Ruth, just as God redeemed us through Christ. And it's just a foreshadowing of the Messiah that is to come. Next week, we're going to see some great things and great truths about this. But one thing I want to note about it before we sing our last song is this. In the narrative speaking, speaking of a narrative, not only is there irony being built with names or locations or things of the such, but what we also see is there's irony in who he is using to accomplish the means of salvation. Because what he's going to do is use a Moabite woman to marry a half Israelite and half foreigner that would produce a son that would produce a son that produced a son that would produce King David that would then lead to Christ. See, not only is God orchestrating this great and amazing plan of salvation for Ruth and Naomi, but God has done that for us in Christ and doing that for us in Christ, guess what? He's taking a bunch of unlikely people like you and I and calling us to be the unlikely means in which he desires to save other people. And so as we reflect on who our Redeemer is, it should lead us to go and to share about our Redeemer. Though we're unlikely candidates, though we're not worthy to proclaim the gospel, though we are not able to answer all of the questions, though we are not able to do whatever it is that we're not able to do, 
one thing that is clear in the story of Naomi and Ruth is that God can do what God wants to do in redeeming his people, and he does it out of love and compassion for his people. So as we get ready to sing a very fitting song, though it wasn't planned like that by myself, it just happened, is we're going to sing a song called In Christ Alone. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen or not. Um, did it die? It's plugged up. I don't know. All right, it died. Uh, we're going to sing In Christ Alone. I hope you know it. Uh, if not, you're just going to have to sit there and just take in the words and enjoy it. Um, but what we're going to see in this song is the reality that we're looking at in Ruth is that we have a Redeemer that saves us, and it is in Him and Him alone is our hope. And so my prayer would be that we would reflect on the sermon as we sing this and that we would see maybe ways in which we are living in ways in which we are wise in our own eyes and that we would understand that this would lead us to a lifestyle where God is not king, which would cause us to be in hopeless despair. But the beautiful, beautiful thing about the gospel is that it's not only for salvation, but it's for those who have been saved to straighten up and do what God would call them to do in God's redemptive work and even their life now. So I'm going to pray towards going to lead us in this song. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray now that you would be with us in this time, that we would glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in your sons and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to another podcast episode for Redeemer Church in Columbus, Mississippi. We hope this material has been beneficial. 